0: This podcast deals with mature themes that are intended for an adult audience. The information in this show could be triggering and cause distress for some viewers. If you feel in distress, please seek out help. Please take care in listening. This is the Relationship Review with Dulcie Martin. Welcome back, everyone. I hope that you're keeping well and that you've found moments of peace and stillness, both with yourself and with your intimate partner. I'd like us to take a minute and center ourselves and connect with the parts of us that are way deep down, the core of who we are. If you're able, I invite you to close your eyes. If you're unable to, especially if you're driving right now, please stay safe and just mindfully listen to this meditation. Please take a deep breath in and out, in and out. Imagine that you're reaching deep within yourself to connect with who you are at your core, your values, your beliefs, and your limitations. What's important to you? Consider this. Deep breath in, and out, in, and out. Now give yourself a mental hug. Maybe you imagine one version of yourself wrapping yourself up in a big hug. Maybe it's something completely different. Whatever works. You are truly you, and you are amazing. Deep breath in and out. And please come back to this brave space. The reason why I asked you to connect with your core self is because we have an episode on boundaries today. Boundaries in relationships are about knowing how the relationship as its own entity functions, but most importantly, it's about knowing how you are as an individual at your core. If we know ourselves, we can know our boundaries. Each person in the relationship is responsible for their individual bodies, words, emotions, and values. So knowing these things can make the boundary setting process more fluid. Healthy boundaries in a relationship are a way of saying, I will take full ownership of what's mine in our relationship and respect your ability to own what's yours. Boundary setting should never be about emotional control, rather emotional understanding and emotional uplifting. Boundaries in relationships seem to fall into the following categories. Physical boundaries, emotional, sexual, financial, and time boundaries. I also want us to consider some additional boundaries which may not be mainstream as of yet, but are equally as important. We'll discuss each of these types of boundaries throughout the episode. Let's begin with a case study. Nathan, age 24, and Nikita, age 23, have been in a relationship for five years. They normally have a very close emotional relationship and are comfortable with discussing their emotions with one another. Nathan has been having trouble at his job in the legal field. He comes home from work very stressed, is often on edge, and spends most of his evening on the internet either gaming or talking to friends on messenger. Nathan has a close relationship with his coworker, Adair. Nikita has been noticing that he's spending more time with her and has stopped sharing with her about how his work is affecting his emotions. Nathan often talks to Adair in the evenings on Messenger, sometimes for an hour or more at a time. Nikita became worried that Nathan was having an affair, so when he was in the shower, she took his phone and read some of his messages. She discovered that Nathan was telling, her, was telling Adair deeply emotional things about his stresses at work, things she'd wished he'd told her. When she confronted Nathan with this information, they got in a big argument. She was upset because she feels that he's cheating on her, and he's upset because he doesn't feel that she should have invaded his privacy by taking her phone. So, um, we have some very heated emotions coming into play. Let's look closer at what's happening here. But before we do, I want to revisit a definition of consent that I presented in an earlier episode that may have been missed. Consent is an integral part of boundary setting and discussion. So here it goes. Consent is mutual. Consent requires non-coerced agreement. Consent for one thing does not mean consent for all things. Consent should be as specific as possible. Maybe is not consent consent is ongoing. You can renegotiate consent at any time. You cannot change the consent agreement without informing the other person first. That's not consent. Now with that in mind, let's take a look at this case closer. The first category of boundaries is physical boundaries, and physical boundaries are those limits that you put in place about your physical self. It appears that Nikita has crossed a physical boundary and a technological boundary when she took Nathan's phone to read his private messages. Studies have found that most individuals feel that their online activity is private and separate from their partner, so any intrusion across those boundaries is felt strongly and is associated with decreased relationship satisfaction. This effect is especially strong in men who felt that their online boundaries were crossed by their partners, like we see in our case example. Some couples have very fluid boundaries when it comes to phone use and password sharing. For some, they take on the assumption that they have nothing to hide from their partner and allowing transparent media use is a form of trust. Others feel that their online life is a private one and their personal devices are just that, personal. They take on the assumption that respect of rigid boundaries is a form of respect for their partners. Very different perspectives, very different justifications, yet both forms of boundaries are maintained for good reason. There really is no right answer to the question of, is it healthier to have complete access to your partner's phone, or is it better to maintain technology boundaries? It really depends on your relationship agreement as a couple. Lots of people have never taken the time to discuss what is acceptable when it comes to your partner's online life. A helpful activity, if you want to begin this, is to have each of you write down what some unacceptable online activities are, compare lists, and discuss differences. But the biggest thing is that this should be done in a curious and open way. Another fun example of a physical boundary is food sharing. Do you share food with your partner? Off the same plate? Off the same fork? If you steal the French fries off your partner's plate, are you going to keep your hand? I asked listeners in my Facebook group a while back if they share food, and the responses were more in favor of sharing food. But I did have the odd few said that their partner would lose that hand if they took the fries. Another physical boundary, to pee or not to pee in front of their partner. Folks are very divided on this one, and it really comes down to a personal comfort level. One physical boundary I had to contend with very early on in my relationship was bed sharing with my husband. It's widely known amongst those who know us that my husband and I don't sleep in the same bed and have our own bedrooms. It's for a combination of reasons. I can take down walls with my snoring ability, and he's a very light sleeper. I move a lot in my sleep, and he wakes with every movement. It took a lot of wrestling with myself to come to the conclusion that having separate beds and rooms was actually better for our relationship. What I wanted to do is force myself to make it work, because way deep down, I had a preconceived notion that married people have to share a bed. And there was something wrong with my relationship if we don't. Once I acknowledged that I was buying into a societal stigma, I actually came to enjoy my own room. I can decorate the way I'd like. He can have his room the way he likes, and we aren't cranky at each other in the morning because one or both of us has slept badly. The most hilarious part about the whole experience is when I tell people that we don't sleep together and they express shock at the fact that he and I have children together. I giggle every time. Physical boundaries are especially important for trauma survivors. When someone has survived a trauma, they've had their physical and emotional space invaded without their permission over and over again. This can take a toll on every aspect of their self all the way down to their core. Just because you consent to having an intimate relationship with your partner, this does not give your partner the right to unrestricted access to your body. There's a lot of couples out there where the random butt grab is totally okay and even welcomed. It can be a way of playing with your partner, and play is an integral part of a healthy romantic relationship, but not everyone appreciates this kind of play. If invading your partner's physical space is something that you do as a playful act of fun, I can appreciate the good intention, but I can't stress enough that this ongoing activity needs to take place with complete consent of your partner. If you feel that your physical space is being invaded by your partner, it's vital that you make them aware of your discomfort. You don't need to undergo re-traumatization in your relationship, and your partner would want to know if they're causing you any undue distress. Remind your partner that you aren't rejecting them personally, nor are you rejecting intimate touch. It just needs to happen in a manner that's agreed upon by both of you, and is pleasurable and is predictable for you. Talking about physical boundaries transitions nicely to talking about sexual boundaries in a relationship. Sexual boundaries involve the physical boundaries of what kind of touch is okay during sex, but it also encompasses so much more. First, what part of your sexual self do you share with your partner, and what do you hold back? In general, disclosing more to your partner can help to facilitate increased emotional attachment. However, in the context of sexuality, it's very understandable that we hold some things close to our hearts. There's nothing wrong with keeping some aspects of yourself from your partner, as long as this is not interfering with your sexual relationship or your companionship relationship. If you feel that a sexual boundary problem might be interfering with your relationship or your personal well-being, I strongly recommend that you look at this area further. This can be done on your own or with the help of a qualified counselor. One way to negotiate sexual boundaries in your relationship is to develop a monogamy agreement. Relationships vary, and each person's level of comfort with certain sexual things will differ. If you discuss your sexuality in advance of sex, it can help facilitate a smooth process at the time. Monogamy agreements are for everyone and every kind and stage of relationship, and will vary in appearance. But here are some discussion points. How do you each feel about pornography viewing? Is it acceptable to you? Is it okay if it's solo? Is it something you like to do together? There's no correct answer here. It completely depends on what's comfortable for all members of the relationship. What about flirting with others? Do you have a naturally flirtatious partner? How do you feel about your partner flirting with others in person or online? Three. Are there certain sexual fantasies that are off limits for you? Are there sexual fantasies that you're curious about and you want to explore more? Next. Next. What sexual positions or actions are uncomfortable for you physically? What feels best for you physically? Are there any positions or actions that are triggering for you? What about online fidelity? Do you consider it cheating if your partner talks with an ex online? Is it comfortable for you to have an ex-partner in your life or your partner's life? Again, there's no right answer to the appropriateness of this question because it truly depends on the individuals. Please remember that boundaries can be renegotiated at any time. These boundaries should never feel like sexual coercion. They need to be placed carefully, with much discussion and emotional validation. When I look at the case of Nikita and Nathan, I can see some crossing of emotional boundaries. Nathan reached out to Adara when he was most emotionally vulnerable. If this was something he never did with Nikita in the past, then I may not target it as an issue. But because he is gradually shutting himself off emotionally from his partner, there could be some problems here. There are many reasons why Nathan may have reached out to Adair for support. Maybe he felt that because they work together, she would better understand his work struggles. This logic makes a lot of sense. He also might be reaching out to her because he feels that Nikita is emotionally overwhelmed with his needs, so he wants to give her a break and talk to someone else. This is definitely a good intentioned reason for this action. The problem is that Nathan is running with an assumption that Nikita no longer wants to engage with him emotionally as they did before. There's a question of emotional infidelity. Emotional infidelity is definitely a thing, but the context is important. If Nikita and Nathan had talked and agreed that they would use each other as primary emotional supports, and Nathan went to Adair anyway, then this is a violation of emotional boundaries. What's more likely here is that they never had this discussion, and this is totally uncharted territory. Nikita's worry about Nathan cheating on her is valid considering he may have been hiding his emotional relationship with Adair, but this should have been addressed verbally rather than invading his privacy. Nathan could have been more upfront about his outside of work relationship with Adair, and discussed his reasons for engaging emotionally with Nikita less. Of course, doing all this is challenging, so they should seek out help. Emotional boundaries are very important and can help strengthen emotional connection. The act of being emotionally vulnerable to say that you'll have a boundary and trust that your partner will not think less of you for having that boundary is a very big deal. Accepting your past can be very helpful in setting emotional boundaries. Your past relationships undoubtedly shape the person you are now. It's important to acknowledge when old stuff, old triggers, bleed into your new relationships, because they will. Because of technology, individuals are more easily accessible to certain persons, which may have taken work to access before. These persons and their relationships with a partner can make boundary setting complicated. Example, an ex-partner, an abusive family member, an unstable friend. Completely cutting ties with an unhealthy person is a lot harder to do now. Your partner wants to protect you and doesn't want to see you emotionally hurt, but setting these boundaries are complex. Sometimes there's a need to set boundaries for tolerance of emotional pain. For some, they're what they call deal breakers. With the knowledge that some emotional pain is inevitable in relationships, they set a tolerance level for how much emotional pain they will cope with before they say enough is enough. Some examples of the emotional pain is being lied to, being condescended, or being silenced. You have a right to set your emotional limits and signing up for a remote romantic relationship does not mean that you have signed up for intense emotional pain and abuse. Another question for emotional boundaries is how much of your private stuff you share with other people. Boundaries vary from person to person and you might find yourself with someone who's easily trusting of others and shares more about your intimate life than you're comfortable with. Are you comfortable with your family and friends knowing about your financial situation? What about them knowing about your sex life? It's important for us to remember that when we talk about our relationships with others, we're not only outing ourselves, but we're outing our partners. Showing our partners respect is knowing how much they share with others about their life and only sharing as much as they would feel comfortable with, not how much we feel comfortable sharing. Next are financial boundaries. Now, let me please begin this bit by stressing that I am not a financial expert. I have no training in financial management. The advice given here is very generalized for this reason. Please seek out the assistance of a financial planner for more information. Most banks have them available to you free of charge, and they're amazing for helping with budgeting and helping the less financially inclined, like myself, understand how these things work. When it comes to financial boundaries, couples generally fall into three groups. And of course, there's exceptions to this rule. First, those who have joint bank accounts for bills and savings only. These folks may set boundaries that certain percentage of family income is set aside in the savings account, some income goes into a bills account, and then each person has their own account for general spending money, where they can individually save and spend how they choose. There's those who have joint accounts for billing, savings, and personal spending. Boundaries here can become a bit more complicated. After all, the bills and the savings are accounted for. There's a large pot of money that's open to spending. Do you each have an equal amount of opportunity to spend what you wish? What if one of you makes more money? Should that person be entitled to more spending money? Do you need to seek permission from your partner to spend from that account? Finally, there are those who have separate accounts of bills, savings, and spending. This provides the maximum amount of autonomy in the relationship, and is the way that a lot of relationships are going now. People make this choice for numerous reasons, but some of them might be. One, one or both individuals have undergone financial abuse before, and this option feels safest to them. Two, the couple has already been dividing their bills in a certain way from early in the relationship, so there's no reason for them to combine accounts or it's too much work. And three, keeping things separate can make things slightly easier in the event of a divorce. The last point leads nicely into a small discussion about prenup agreements and postnuptial agreements, which are a type of boundary that some couples choose to put in place. If there's a large amount of financial difference between two individuals before they're married or in a common-law relationship, some choose to ask their partner to sign a prenuptial agreement. The theory being that the process of divorce changes you, and because your negative feeling bank for your partner is higher at this point of divorce, you're less likely to act like your rational self when deciding how to divide assets. The prenup is completed so that these decisions are made when you're feeling good about your partner and are more likely to think rationally and reasonably. A post-nup is done if you gain assets after you're married. Prenups and post-nups can also outline child care responsibilities in the event of a divorce. This is obviously not the most detailed legal definition of these documents, and there's a lot more to it, but it's a kind of an overview. People choose to lay out a boundary of these agreements for a few reasons. They believe that they're similar to wills, and that just because we implement a will doesn't mean that we're going to die immediately. Just because you implement a prenup or a post-nup doesn't mean you're going to get divorced. Um, Some families may ask their loved one to build a pre or post-nup into their marriage because they're worried about protecting the family from financial exploitation. This is especially the case where someone is marrying into a business-minded family who've gained assets for generations. Another reason is they've been financially abused in the past and they want to protect themselves. And there's a lot more reasons than that. Whether these agreements are good for a relationship or not is certainly not for me to say. I can say that they bring up some very intense emotions for people, especially when one partner is genuinely worried that their loved one is already thinking of divorce early on in the relationship. These decisions need to be made very carefully, with open discussion, with consent, and with the legal advice of a professional. The concept of financial intimacy is how much of your financial life you're comfortable sharing with your partner. Do you have complete disclosure of financial information? How do you speak about financial matters? This is also very important. Those relationships that have more financial intimacy have more disclosure, but are also able to talk about finances in a curious, problem-solving, and reasonable way. Setting financial boundaries with your partner can feel uncomfortable because it feels parental, but it's vital. If you and your partner have similar incomes, it's marginally easier to have this conversation. If you have different incomes and you're the partner who makes more, it can be really tempting just to pay extra to cover for your partner if they're being financially irresponsible. But this can cause a lot of financial loss in the relationship, especially to you. It can set a precedent for a bad habit. Some things you can consider when setting financial boundaries comes from a very helpful article I found on financial intimacy. First, decide on your mutually agreed upon values and set collective goals. Set a date and a time every month to review your finances. Don't be afraid to check in with each other regularly to make sure each of you are following your plan so you can make adjustments. Though it's up to you how much of your personal financial information you share with your partner, financial secrets are a huge cause of conflict and can complicate equitable boundary setting. Be comfortable saying no. When your partner has made poor choices or is overspending, don't feel obligated to bail them out. Instead, guide them toward making a better decision next time. This may be an intentional violation of financial boundaries, but it could also just be a lack of knowledge about finances. Money management is really difficult. And spending habits are learned in childhood, often by observing how our parents manage money. If your partner seems financially irresponsible, it's very likely that they don't understand the impact their behavior is having on your family finances, because they have trouble understanding the larger financial picture, but know what your own limitations are. Finally, we have time boundaries. In our case study, we can see a potential violation of time boundaries. Nathan and Nikita shared that Nathan spends a lot of time in his evenings and weekends engaging with technology. This leaves the couple with little time to connect on an emotional level, which is an essential aspect of a romantic relationship. What's most likely here is that the couple has never had a detailed discussion of tech-free times or the amount of time each of them feels they need to spend with their devices. Sometimes people turn to devices as a default way of de-stressing because their phones are there and accessible and gives us a dopamine rush our brains crave when we use them. Many successful relationships have tech-free time during the day or week where they spend time with each other in an intentional way. I'd encourage Nikita and Nathan to have a discussion and to set some clear boundaries on how and when they use technology. A more gentle way of phrasing it may be, looking at how much time they will prioritize with each other doing tech-free activities. It's the same idea, but the second way of looking at it is less loss-oriented. Like many, Nathan may have loose work-at-home boundaries. Technology has made it harder to keep work-life boundaries because this area of your life is easier and accessible. Before tech, you'd have to warm up your car, drive to the office, find your keys, rummage through a paper-packed office to meet your work needs for your employer which is much less appealing than just picking up your phone. Many employers take advantage of this, and unfortunately, it's usually at the expense of the mental well-being of their employee. When we're at work, our work brain is in work mode. This is very real and is very different from the pathways that our brain needs to use to create bonds with our family at home. When work bleeds into home, you take those work pathways with you, and it's very difficult to switch quickly into the bonding-building pathways that your brain needs. I understand that sometimes it's necessary, but if it becomes a regular occurrence, you could be moving into burnout territory. Spending too much time with your spouse isn't always a good thing. It can also hurt career development because you don't put the time needed to develop professional relationships outside of your intimate relationship. Having friendships and interests outside of your partner is very healthy. It broadens your outlook on the world. If you only hang out with your partner, you can begin to feel like that their outlook on the world is the only one out there other than your own. And there's lots of super interesting folks out there. So there are a few kinds of boundaries that I feel should be considered separate from the above ones because I wouldn't want them missed. Parenting boundaries can span all of the previously mentioned categories, but isn't applicable to all relationships, so should be mentioned separately. For those with children in their lives, these boundaries take into account what you consider to be acceptable as a parent or a method of parenting. It encompasses each parent's individual values, childhood experiences, and cultural values. To cover this topic thoroughly would take me an entire episode or two, so this is all I'll mention on parenting boundaries here. I'll endeavor to devote a full episode to this important topic in the future. There's family connection boundaries. What's an appropriate amount of time to spend with an extended family? How much emotional and financial investment do we give extended family? This is individually determined, but even more important, it's culturally determined. There's such a wide cultural mosaic of beliefs on this topic that it's actually staggering. In general, those who take on a more individualistic Western view of family acknowledges that the extended family is important, but their main priority is themselves and their immediate family, so their spouse and their children. Finances are allocated primarily to themselves and immediate family, with leftovers given if possible or desired. This can differ from those who take on a collectivistic, community-oriented values. A great example of this is our Canadian-Filipino community, who work very hard in Canada to send money back home to family in the Philippines. Things can become a bit tricky if you have folks from two or multiple different cultures in a relationship. Each member of the relationship wants to honor their culture, but also honor their partner's culture. This can be a tricky dance and requires some good communication and empathy. The majority of folks I've spoken to in mixed culture relationships say that they aim for a combination of both, and they try to expose their children to traditional cultures of both parents. Also common was a theme of them sharing that they chose only to have small tokens of traditional culture in their home, and they engage more in their traditional cultures when they visited their in-laws or grandparents. Finally, we need to consider spiritual boundaries. What if you and your partner have differing spiritual beliefs? How much do you talk about it with each other at home? What's that old saying? Relationships should avoid talking about sex, politics, and religion. I definitely disagree with the fact that it says we shouldn't talk about these things because we absolutely should. Where the saying got it right was pointing out that these are three of the most emotionally charged topics that we can talk about in an intimate relationship. And they have the potential for creating conflict if they're not discussed in a certain way. So, what if you're in a relationship and you have different beliefs? What if one of you doesn't believe in organized religion? Does one person go to church and the other stay at home? Does the whole family go? What's the expected level of participation in the other partner's faith experience? There's certainly no easy answers to this question, and again, no correct answers. What's important is what you choose makes everyone feel safe and validated. People can have very rigid boundaries where there's little to no flexibility or ability to negotiate new ones. Or people can have very weak boundaries where they have an inability to say no. The goal is to shoot for boundaries somewhere in between. Boundaries have to be flexible depending on their circumstances. Sudden job loss, health decline, that sort of thing. I do admire those that have rigid boundaries because they hold strong to their beliefs even when it's hard. The problem is that when we have overly rigid boundaries, we create a lot of distance between ourselves and our loved ones. We also stop considering the needs and the emotions of others. You absolutely need to prioritize yourself sometimes, and some boundaries are very important to hold, especially in the case of trauma survivors. But it's holding space for others that makes us human. I also admire those that have loose boundaries because they're open-minded and considerate of others. I'm one of those folks. I have a mortal fear of offending someone. I've done it before, I'll likely do it again, but it's never going to feel good for me. Those of us with loose boundaries are people-pleasers, and we have a hard time saying no. The problem with this way of life is that people-pleasers lose themselves and can have a lot of difficulty setting boundaries because they're so worried about others not liking them that they have no idea what boundaries are appropriate. They also run into struggles because when they do set boundaries... People can interpret this behavior as being overly aggressive in them because they're not used to that person asserting themselves. It gets complicated. I'm working on boundary setting every day and still struggle with it. This episode was very therapeutic in a way for me, so I hope it can be for you too. The best time to set boundaries is early on in the development of a relationship. But boundaries can absolutely be set and renegotiated throughout the life of the relationship. The challenge comes when you feel that your partner needs to be aware of the fact that a boundary needs to be set or that a current boundary isn't working. It's very difficult to change boundaries if both of you aren't on board. Here are some things that can signal a need for you to discuss boundaries with your partner. One, saying yes to a partner when you'd rather say no. We do this to avoid conflict and to please our partners. Two, Assuming your partner is reading your mind instead of telling them straight up what you're thinking or feeling. We've talked about the mind-reading fallacy before in a previous episode. Our partners can't read our minds, so if we're not upfront about something making us uncomfortable, we can't expect them to know this instinctually. Three, trying to control your partner's thoughts and way of being or feel like you're being controlled through manipulation. Four, situation comes up, your gut feels uncomfortable or unsettled. This may indicate a boundary being straddled and a need to investigate further. This is often indicative that you aren't living by your values. How do we make our partners aware of this in a gentle way? I invite you to listen to my communication episode if you haven't yet, because it'll give you a more thorough explanation of having a difficult conversation. In general, though, we always want to approach our partners with an air of positivity and appreciation. Beginning a conversation with something you appreciate about them will immediately fill them with a feeling of goodness and make them more amenable to hearing what you need to share. Make sure to take ownership for what stuff is yours in the boundary discussion, and hopefully your healthy modeling will encourage your partner to do the same. Be aware if you have a people-pleasing nature and if you fear rejection. It's scary to talk to our partners about our needs because it leaves us feeling exposed and vulnerable. It's almost like our brains feel like setting a boundary will be the difference between your partner loving you forever or rejecting who you are at your core. Of course, in a loving relationship, we're accepting the needs of our partners, but the fear is they're all the same. It's okay to say no to your loved one. When you signed up for the relationship, you didn't sign up to lose your autonomy. It's also important to recognize your own tendencies when someone is setting a boundary with you. It's hard to hear the word no. Oh my goodness, I still to this day hate being told no. When it happens, I feel this uncomfortable, sick feeling in my stomach. My face heats up, my heart races, and I get shaky. It sucks. What does it feel like for you when someone tells you no? It's totally normal to dislike the word no and to have a physical reaction when it happens, and I think that it stems from childhood and hearing no. If this is something you want to work on, I'd encourage you to have a mantra to say automatically when you hear the word no. An example might be, these emotions are valid, but they have a right to set their own boundaries. With enough repetitions, your brain should learn that the word no isn't a threat and the visceral reaction isn't necessary. If after listening to this episode, you've realized that you may have unintentionally crossed one of your partner's boundaries... It's absolutely possible to address this when you feel ready to. John Gottman, one of my relationship gurus, made the point that when he looked at the most successful relationship, it wasn't the topic or frequency of heated discussions that made a difference to the overall relationship. What made the biggest difference was how the argument was discussed about afterward and what reparations were made. How we apologize after we've broken someone else's boundary makes all the difference in the outcome of this action. When you take responsibility for your part in the conflict or harsh treatment, and your partner is willing to take responsibility for their part, it becomes a more respectful environment and it's easier to address the problem. It's usually accidental when a partner oversteps their boundaries. Though it's very upsetting when this happens, the worst thing you can do is meet your partner with an accusatory manner and assume that their intention was to hurt you. Boundary setting is hard and continuous work, but like the strong concrete foundation of a house, boundaries set a strong foundation for the rest of the relationship to flourish. Thank you for listening. I thank you for entering this brave space today and take good care.